please stand for the reading of God's word. Now at Lestra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the Lycian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should, re- that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and goodness and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iseum, And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on to Barnabas to Darby. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iseum and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in their faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. The word of the, word of the Lord. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You can add that verse to the list of ones you will not find on a little coffee mug on your desk. Because who wants to think about the cross when you can afford a vacation? Who wants to think about hardship when we can sit down and enjoy reruns of Chip and JoJo do their thing? It's verses like that that make you think, you know, is there a side door into the kingdom? Because I really do not like those verses. They're not particularly encouraging. And the strange thing is that this passage says that Paul actually uses these words to strengthen these churches. When you take a verse like this and you lay it aside, the church in our context, they seem out of place. Especially in a church context that constantly offers newcomers the opportunity to sign up for the VIP experience before they come and visit. Oh yes, that's a thing. It's rampant. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This verse is the reality when the gospel confronts the pagan world. This week, this passage, that verse, reminded me of the story of our first baptism in the deep forest. It was 2012, and we were visiting the church of Pastor Raju, and we enjoyed a worship service with his congregation. 
And after the service was over, the G brothers came up and asked us if we would participate or if we would baptize a woman in this church who was recently converted. And so we said, of course, what an honor. And so we were taken out to this remote lake where they performed their baptisms. And on the way, uh, the G brothers said, you will need to uh, give her a new name, as is our custom in India when they're baptized. And so we uh, settled on the name of Ruth because she said that she wanted to be married and had, a, and had a desire that she would find a husband. And her baptism was powerful. And you watch, I just watched her cry tears of joy as she and the women with her sang songs in Telugu. And when we left, we got in the van just on a high, having witnessed this beautiful moment. And we started talking with the nunth, asking, asking questions about Ruth's story. And he said that she came from a village that still practices cannibalism. And that she's actually the first convert in her village. And he said that news of her baptism would spread like a wildfire in the deep forest. And most likely she would be kicked out of her village and she would be forsaken by the only family and the only community that she's ever known with absolutely nothing. And she put a serious dent in any possibility that she would ever be married. It was sobering when he said those words to realize that we'd effectively participated in the event that by worldly standards would otherwise ruin this woman's life. Through many hardships and tribulations, Ruth must enter the kingdom of God. It's a harsh reminder of the reality when the gospel goes out into a pagan world that doesn't want it. But what lies behind this verse and Ruth's story is not the harshness and coldness and indifference of God. It's actually his goodness. The problem is that we feel sorry for Ruth while she's crying tears of joy. What's wrong with our worldview? What is that thing that you've pursued? What's the goodness? What's the blessing that you've put your life in? What's that one thing that you had to have? Degrees, management, adoring friends, Ivy League kids, perfect house. Whatever it is, part of faithfulness is asking the question, has it worked? Has it really offered what you thought it would? Has it filled your heart with an inner peace that surpasses understanding? Have you experienced a love of which there, you cannot measure the height, width, depth, or breadth? Or are you dissatisfied, discontent, anxious, and afraid? If so, then maybe we don't actually know what goodness is. Because we hear Ruth's story and we often feel uncomfortable when we hear verses like this, and then we see it played out in stories like Ruth's, because we want to distance ourselves from that being our reality and our story, and we think, I don't want that story. And yet at the same time, is that not exactly how her village responded to her? We don't want what you have. And perhaps we share something in common with this pagan village that actually is keeping us from experiencing the goodness that our hearts truly desire. And so how do we find it? Because we have looked for it in everything that we've tried to accomplish and pursue and obtain. And Paul tells us a different way. We've followed Paul so far on his first missionary journey, and today in Acts 14, he comes to Lystra. 
And again, just like before, he's preaching to the crowds and he sees a lame man. And just like we've seen before, he heals this man and of course the crowds marvel. But what we haven't seen thus far is their response. They immediately start worshiping Paul and Barnabas, calling them Zeus and Hermes. And the reason is that one of their cultural stories, one of their legends of their religion, was that in times past, Zeus and Hermes appeared to them in Lystra and to the region as men. They disguised themselves as everyday men, and they blessed anyone who would receive them with hospitality and kindness. So in this moment, this story is driving their pursuit and understanding of goodness, and they do not want to miss out. And so notice Paul's response, because it may surprise you. Notice he never actually, when he responds and preaches, he never says Jesus. He never says the word sin. He doesn't talk about the cross, salvation, or the law. He doesn't talk about anything that we've been accustomed to in all of these sermons and acts up until this point. Why is that? Well, we have to recognize that this passage is different because now we're seeing that for the first time that Paul preaches to a completely Gentile audience where their, their culture has no conception of Judaism. It is not influenced in any way by Yahweh or the God of Judaism or the God of Paul. And so for him to use those words, he might as well have been speaking Mandarin. They don't understand it. There's no grid for what he would be talking about because the gospel has arrived in a truly pagan country because their understanding of life and goodness is informed and shaped by a completely different set of stories. And so where does Paul begin with them when he preaches? He begins with theology 101. He introduces them to the one true God and says that all the goodness and blessing and gladness that they have experienced, all the rain and harvest and joy that has filled their hearts has come from him and him alone. Paul starts with the most basic fundamental fact that God is the source of all life and goodness and blessing. How simple that fact is, right? It's so simple. We might consider it so elementary that we would just move right along and not even pay any attention. But today, might we consider the question, is the way that you live your life a reflection that you believe that God alone is the source of all goodness and life? When we consider that question, I think we might recognize that living in light of that truth is much harder for us than we think. And I think if we try and connect with this passage, we need to connect with this pagan culture because it might feel a little bit more distant than it really should. We live in a church context that is rapidly secularizing and paganizing and becoming increasingly godness, godless and has been really for decades. And there's more and more and more studies that are showing that the pace is only picking up. And statistically in America, the Protestant church makes up the segment of the overall church in the United States that is the most devoted when surveyed to biblical principles and values for life. Yet if you take a look at their actual life and practice, 75% of Protestants only show up in church a maximum of twice a month. And the vast majority of that 75% check the box seldom or never. And so on the whole, it's estimated that only 20% of Americans are actually in church on any given week. Why? Because we don't believe that God is the source of all goodness in life and we have found something else to do with our time. And it's, it's estimated that in 2014, 8,000 churches closed their doors. 
And in 2014, they did a Pewform released a study on young adults between the ages of 18 to 29 uh, years old and found that 20% of them believe that the Bible is the Word of God and should be taken seriously. 20% of the very demographic that is supposed to be coming into the church to bring new energy. And I think to some degree, we have to recognize at some point, we can bury our head in the ground or we can keep an ear to the ground. And part of that is recognizing that the death knell has essentially sounded on Western Christianity. Something has happened right under our noses where no longer do we see a broadly practiced faith built on the scriptures, the word of God, built on repentance, sacrificial love, character through suffering, holiness, faith in Christ alone, and independence upon God and all things. Because the God of our culture has become the God of self-indulgence, individualism, self-esteem, the God that would validate anything that you decide you should pursue. He's no longer the God that is a part of every life, everyday life. He's distant from it. And is the complete opposite of the God of the cross. That is the complete opposite of Paul in this passage, the God from whom all goodness in life flows. So I say this because if you want to be a disciple of Jesus that is committed to a biblical, historic, orthodox faith, we probably need to recognize that already you are in an overwhelming minority. And our culture has far more in common with this pagan crowd than we may initially think. Because our culture's conception of life is increasingly being built on stories that tell you how to pursue goodness and blessing without any thought of where it actually comes from. Who needs God when you have youth sports? Who needs God whenever you're this close to a down payment or this close to a promotion? It urges us to consider what are we pursuing? And so, of course, we are tempted to live just like this pagan culture when we live in a way that believes that God's goodness can be found through a different source. When we believe that we can actually obtain the same goodness that God offers to us for a cheaper price at a different store down the street. And I actually believe that our desire for goodness and blessing is one of the biggest reasons why we're seeing the demise of the faith in our context. It's because we've settled for the simplest, oldest trick in the book. It's the lie of the serpent. You can completely cut God out of the equation, and you can still experience all the goodness that he has to offer. You don't actually need him. And so consider this for us. Consider if Paul would come into this culture and the way that he would try to rescue them from their paganism is by preaching to them that God alone is the source of all goodness and life, then perhaps when we forget and ignore that fact is actually how we begin to fall in to paganism. And it's actually very destructive when we do. Because part of that is seeking goodness and blessing apart from God and the ways that he has made clear and commanded us to do. It's incredibly destructive. And so how, how so? What does that look like? Well, if we allowed the millennial generation to offer us some insight, it might look like this. In 2005, two Christian sociologists, uh, Christian Smith uh, and Melinda Denton from Notre Dame, led a study on the religious beliefs of millennials while they were in their teenage years. And their work was a launch pad for all sorts of studies and questions that it produced. And it was just a, a landmark in the field because it showed a growing irrelevance and an ignorance of basic biblical doctrine and religion that our teenagers were expressing. 
their understanding of religion and Christianity, whether they claim to be Christian or not, ultimately was so simplistic and so far from anything that the Bible effectively taught. And so much so that out of this study, they classified this understanding of religion that was so pervasive and rampant in our culture essentially as a new paganism. And they called it moralistic, therapeutic deism. And they call it that because it effectively is the basic tenets of this new belief system. It's that God's moralistic because God essentially wants people to be good and nice to each other. It's therapeutic because God's biggest desire for you is to be, as an individual, is to be happy and to be self-confident. And it's deistic because God exists, yes, but he's otherwise uninvolved with the world. He's not involved with the goodness that I would experience. He's only there to bail me out. And what really struck the researchers was really, some, in some ways, the data, of course, that developed moralistic therapeutic deism, but it was actually what they saw whenever they sat down with these teenagers. It was incredibly hard to get them to talk about God and religion in the first place. In fact, their reluctance and unwillingness and indifference was so pervasive that in their book, where they talk about the results, they called it, the first hurdle was that they had to get over their benign whateverism. They just didn't care. How have we gotten to a place where there's a whole generation that is indifferent to a God that says he is the source of all goodness and blessing? Al Mohler wrote, an article on moralistic therapeutic deism, and he said, as I look at these teenagers, perhaps we have to recognize that our teenagers have actually been listening all along. And they understand perfectly well either how much or how little their parents truly believe. So how is it, what is it that might happen in us? How can we understand and be aware that we would produce indifference? That when our lives are surveyed, there's just a mumness to the faith. How do we contribute to this benign whateverism? I do think it's out of our pursuit of goodness or lack thereof that we would influence this indifference in our culture and in our children. And so what does that actually look like? Well, if we consider Paul's experience in this passage, it might help us understand how. He's been preaching and taking the gospel to the world. He's been faithful. He has, uh, he's done exactly what God has called him to do. He suffered and he's evangelized this crowd. He's evangelized and set up all of these churches and he's borne witness and fulfilling his portion of the great commission. And here again in this crowd, he points them towards God. But then what do we see happen? The Jews that have been chasing him all along finally catch up with him. They influence these crowds, they turn him against Paul, and together they stone him, drag him outside the city, and leave him for dead. How about that? And I think right here in this moment is where indifference begins. Because how easy is it for us, whenever we set ourselves to experience the the goodness and blessings of God, and we try to be obedient, and we try to be faithful, and we try to do exactly what he asks us to do, And then all of a sudden, things don't really turn out the way that we want them to. Tragedy happens. The trauma happens. We don't experience the goodness that we want, that we otherwise thought we were going to get. And so we say, I'm faithful to you, and you let this happen to me? You stone me and leave me for dead? Sure, you exist. But you are otherwise not 
a priority. And out of that disappointment, what happens? Well, it becomes a lot easier to begin to trust in other stories and promises around us that offer goodness and blessing and far more easier, uh, the, or the goodness and blessing that's far more easily obtained than it is to follow God and trust that what he offers is better. And so we may not say it in words, but certainly in actions, we say that God doesn't seem to care about me. God doesn't seem to be concerned with my welfare, and so I have to take things into my own hands and make things as good as I possibly can. Yes, God exists, but I have to look out for myself if I want to experience goodness and blessing. And so then, just like the paganism of our day, we find ourselves very open to pursuing that goodness in other things, and so we set ourselves to it. And so, you know, I'll find goodness and blessing in the opportunities for my career success and making the most of them. I'll find it in financial security, marrying the right person having the right spouse, having successful children, financial security, or being part of the right social strata. And so, of course, when those things become values to us and we feel that the only way we can experience goodness is when these things are must-haves, of course we hand them down. But I don't often think that we're really willing to also look at the consequences of those things when we pursue that goodness apart from God. Because if we're willing to ask that question, does it really work, I think we would find that we also hand down a lot of other things too. So think about the fact that you might have financial security, but you have zero inner peace. You might be a part of the right social strata, yet you feel completely alone and unseen. You might have successful children, and yet to you, they are complete strangers. And if we looked a little bit deeper at that and asked some other questions about the promises our culture offers us and the ways that we believe them, why is it that self-help books are the biggest genre in any bookstore, and they're all marketed to the middle and upper class? Why is it that heroin and opioid addiction have, has increased in the last 10 years 60% among people that have an income of $50,000 or higher? Why is it that alcoholism dramatically increases with income? Why are we so tired? Why are we so dissatisfied? Why are we so anxious? Why does life never feel vibrant? We're a roost tears of joy. When we seek goodness apart from a relationship with God, we're choosing independence, which is the worst possible situation for you. And it brings the worst out in us. Because we were never created for independence, we were created for dependence. And when we do choose to seek goodness apart from being rooted ultimately in God and the ways that He would have us, we, of course, we feel everything is up to us. And so, of course, we have to make all the right decisions. I have to make all the right choices. I have to lay hold of every single opportunity, and I don't want to miss out. And so when we feel that we have to take matters into our own hands, and we feel the reality of the independence that we have chosen, of course, we feel anxious and out of control. And out of that anxiety, what happens? We become angry. And our homes become filled with our rage we become frustrated and discontent. We distance ourselves and become isolated. Life becomes chaotic and we feel like we're drowning. We feel that we have to disconnect and so we can't stay off our phones and to deal with just the constant anxiety. There's gotta be some sort of release valve and so we self-medicate and then we cycle and you know, back and forth between shame and guilt and compensation. Is that the good life? And so I have to, I have to, we have to recognize that part of perhaps 
that benign whateverism makes sense. Whenever we recognize that there's a whole generations of kids that would say, why would I care if God is in my life when he seems to have done so little for my parents? I think I'll go my own way. And then we produce a sense of independence in them that they have to decide what is goodness to them. At some point, might we also recognize that we hand down good opportunities, but we don't also hand down a ways of dealing with all of the things of life that we cannot control. We hand down indifference. We hand down insecurity. Anytime we do not first and above all hand down God alone as a source of all goodness and life. Because it is a destructive thing to seek goodness apart from God. Now, at this point, I probably have to address the fact that you're thinking, wow, Zach, thank you for making me feel like an utter failure today as a parent and a Christian. It's not my intention. The Bible tells us that we have to discern the times and seasons in which we live if we want to remain faithful. And that discernment always requires that we take a hard look and understand the cultural influences around us so that we might know which way that we should go, so that we might know how we can stay faithful and not be led astray. And saying they bring up the moralistic therapeutic deism and all of these results is because the one thing that is true, and the reason I bring that up is not to show you or make you feel guilty about how uninfluential you are or how we're all failures. It's the quite, quite the opposite. The one thing that that study showed that Christian Smith hammered on so much was how influential you actually are. Because the children that could articulate something every time said it was from their parents most of all. So I say that to encourage you that you, in your faith and in your pursuit of God and his goodness is that your children see you. And you don't have to be perfect, just persistent. You, they see you try and work through anger to be a more gentle and encouraging and uh, parent and spouse. They see you try to work to become more patient with your, with your spouse. They see you try to work to become more self-sacrificial and sacrificially loving to your spouse. Now that's something worth asking. How do you get that? And they see you as you struggle to be faithful to the God who is good, to the God who is the source of all life. And Paul would say, the way that you do that is by bringing, he would encourage us to bring God back into the center and to resist the paganism of our day that would say we can have everything that he offers by pushing him here and we can live in both worlds. He would say, no, the goodness that you really can experience is by bringing him back to the center where he needs to be. So how do you do that? Well, if you look at the way that Paul leads this crowd, what does he do? Notice he doesn't say, if anybody's a doctor here, you should feel guilty because you're probably blessed. He doesn't tell anybody that they have to give up degrees. He doesn't tell them to feel guilty for wanting good things for their kids. He doesn't tell them they have to lay, take anything good in your life and reject it, okay? Because God's here and he doesn't want anybody to have anything good. He does the complete opposite. He actually leads them to a knowledge of the living God by actually identifying and pointing out the goodness in their lives that they've experienced from his hand. And he would have us do the exact same thing, that you would find God by identifying the goodness that he has shown you. He would have you find God through gratitude. And that seems so simple, again, that we just move right along. But again, what is the effect of that? Well, Paul would say elsewhere that inner peace that we all want and crave is a product of gratitude. In Philippians 4, does he not say, don't be anxious 
but in every situation, by prayer and with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I would probably give everything I have to experience that. And Paul is telling you that gratitude is an anxiety killer. Because when we, are, when we practice gratitude, we are stopping and willfully choosing to recognize God's goodness in our lives and that nothing that we have that we thought we might have had for ourselves is because of our own ability. It's actually because he's been good to us. And when we practice gratitude, we're choosing to see God in every circumstance and in every situation and to begin to recognize that our lives are not built on sand. They're actually built on a far firmer foundation than any that we could ever produce for ourselves. And it's through gratitude that we recognize that that's how we reject the distant, indifferent God of our culture. And we bring him back into the day today and realize that everything we have is built upon him. So I would challenge you this week to believe that. I would challenge you this week to believe that God is the source of all goodness and life. And I wouldn't, I'd ask you to not just profess it, but to practice it. I would challenge you each day this week, multiple times a day if you're willing, to stop and to thank God for the goodness that he has shown you. Stop and thank God for the fact that you have eyesight and you're not blind. Stop and thank God that you can hear. Stop and thank God that you woke up and you have breath in your lungs. Stop and thank God that you can do a sales pitch and God gave you an ability to close a deal and you've been blessed. Stop and thank God that you have a memory that can go through a a, a difficult degree and to be so blessed because of it. That your children woke up, that you have your spouse, that you have this kind of sort of beat up car that you know needs to be fixed, but still you have it and it gets you from A to B. When we stop and we thank God for the goodness that he has shown us, that's the exact place where his fingerprints are all over our lives, and it's in gratitude that we recognize it. And if you do that for a week, each and every day, I would ask you to consider and to realize that perhaps there is a, a peace that begins to grow within you, that surpasses understanding, because perhaps it's in gratitude and meeting is that we meet God in those little moments. It's actually that he would lead us through the goodness that he has shown us because it's by that that we come to meet him, which is goodness itself. Because Paul would say there is a goodness available to you that would cause him to get up after being stoned and to go right back into that same city that stoned him. And then after that, to go back to every single city and village along the way that he had already experienced suffering and persecution. And he would say that there's a goodness available to you that just like Ruth, even at the loss of all things, you would still cry tears of joy. That is an otherworldly goodness offered to us all. And might we all taste it? And might this be true of all of us? Might it be written on every doorway of every home and every heart in this church that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we stop this morning as we come to your table and we thank you for everything that you have given to us. I thank you that you've given us one another. We thank you that you've given us friendship, community, families, homes, vehicles, wealth, and resources. Might we find you in all the goodness that you have shown us.
And might we be humbled by the goodness that you have shown us. And out of that gratitude, we would ask you in return, what is it that you would ask of us? We desire above all else that we would experience and taste the goodness of life, which is ultimately only found in you because you are goodness itself. Would you be gracious to us this morning? Would you urge us to take seriously that you want us to know that you are good and to experience it? We come to your table with empty hands this morning and we ask that you would satisfy our hunger and you would quench our thirst. We ask all this in the precious name of Christ our Lord. Amen.